0: I do like that. That was the intro from the haunting melody from the film Titanic. It was from a live performance by Celine Dion. At the end of your magazine, you can hear the rest of this fantastic song. Well, hello. Where has this year gone? Last time we were here to put your magazine together, it was April. Now it's September. Just think. I know it's hard to believe, but there's only just about a 100 shopping days left before Christmas. Yes, folks, you heard it here first. As always, we are here recording in Colin Chance House, deep in the heart of Worcester, and my name is Barry. As you all must know, the Worcester Talking News and magazine are all recorded, processed and sent to you by many volunteers, and I'd like to thank them all, especially Janet Weaver, Carol Hartle and Ben Kent, who puts everything we recall here and more on the ever-growing Worcester Talking Newspaper website. Podcasts, too, are now available. And yes, I haven't forgotten Duncan. Duncan is, and I say this without exaggeration, a genius, working in there with his huge bank of knobs and levers in front of him. That he twists around and pushes up and down to try and make us sound as if we know what we're doing. Only you, ladies and gentlemen, can be the judge. If we all had a drink in front of us right now, we'd drink a toast to him. Unfortunately, we haven't. Right, around the table with me today are... Brian. Good and Kate. Good. Let's start with this evening events. By dates from September's past And we're going to turn this into a little bit of a quiz um, We're going to say Ask the question of event in December, uh, September And if anyone of our team can add a little bit to it They're going to get a point And we'll see how many points they've got at the end For the winning cup of coffee Right, the first question Name the Sun King French, obviously, who died today in 1715 after the longest reign in European history.
1: Louis XIV? Yes, well
0: done. Anyone can add anything about his reign? No, I think he came after the 13th. (laughs) Oh, well done. (laughs) Probably before the 15th. I don't don't think that... What about um, the famous Englishman that Beat his armies. He, of course, Louis really the Fourteenth um, was Mar- tremendously Mar- victorious.
2: I'm looking at Marlborough.
0: Yes, at Blenheim. That's right. Yeah. Know. What? What? What?
2: No,
0: no, I was agreeing with Brian. Oh, I see. Well, I think Brian gets a point for that. Thank you. Brian is ahead one oh. 0
2: <laughs> Okay. Sorry. Quit while I'm winning. <laughs> 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 what? Uh, what
0: fire began today in 1666 in a baker's shop? Pudding Lane.
2: I think. Well,
0: Pudding, Pudding Lane was the one, yes. Yeah. That's, well, I great suppose fi- that's another point. The Great yeah. Fire yeah. of, great of London. Fire. London. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I can't give you a point for that because it's a bit obvious. Yes, <laughs> it's too obvious. Yes. But Pudding Lane, I can give you a and point. That is there.
1: now marked with a magnificent column. Mm. Oh, I'll give you a point yeah, for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
0: The reign of Charles II. Okay, you're getting too damn clever. <laughs> Anything else about the Great Fire? Somebody's diary. Peeps. Ah, yes. Oh God, <laughs> i run out of paper. Okay, that's enough. Thank you. <laughs> uh, oh, that's too hard. Won't do that one. Uh, oh, here we go. Which? Irish actor gave his first performance as Macbeth in a controversial production at London's Old Vic, 1980. What was the date? 1980. Yes. Hmm. September.
2: Oh, tool. Oh,
0: yeah, well done, well done. Mm. Anybody
2: expand on that? No, I can't. No, he was... Uh, a little bit under the influence of the cherryade at the time, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he, yeah, he just did a very weird um, performance. Anyway, no, I, I don't think I was, We leave that at 4 1 and Kate's running up the rear here. Okay, that do what we oh, haven't answered oh. any questions. <laughs> oh god, it's
3: right, okay. right, so um.
0: what we got here. Um, well, could you do? Oh, well, do one of yours, Brian.
2: Well, to begin with, I, many of our regular listeners will know that in recent months I've been delving into the archives of the Times newspaper for letters to the editor about a hundred years ago. We now have moved into the 1920s, and I've got a short couple of short items here. One from June 1925 to the editor of the Times. Sir, I am very sensible of the fact that your most important paper attentively follows my political and polemical manifestations. Allow me, however, to rectify some statements contained in your last editorial. It does not correspond with facts that the last bills voted by the Italian Chamber against are against the most elementary liberties whereof you will be convinced by carefully considering the article of the aforesaid laws. It is not true that our patriots are discontented. On the contrary, the truth is that the opposition is carried on by a small dispossessed group, while the enormous majority of the Italian people work and live quietly. As foreigners sojourning in my country may daily ascertain, Please note also that at the moment fascism accounts three million adherents, whereof two million are syndicalist workmen and peasants. Even the Italian opposition now recognises the great historical importance of the fascist experiment, which has to be firmly continued in order not to fail in its task of morally and materially elevating the Italian people and also in the interest of European civilization. Please accept my thanks and regards. I am Sir... Benito Mussolini.
4: <laughs>
2: the Times had previously criticised Il Duce's repression of the press and political opposition. Because himself, of being a former journalist, Benito Mussolini was keenly aware of the influence of the media on public opinion, both at home and abroad. The second short letter shows, the magic phrase is still applicable, plus ça change. The second letter I've chosen comes from January 1926 and proves the old saying, plus ça change. It's headed, a swindle by telephone. Sir, I wish to warn your readers about a swindle which has trapped even astute men of business. The modus operandi is a telephone call from a person claiming to be a friend or to have a business or personal connection with the victim. This gentleman is in distress, having been robbed of his purse. Would his friend help him with a telegraph remittance in the nearest post office to enable him to return to his home in our country? This in itself sounds bald and unconvincing, but is often elaborated with sufficient circumstantial detail to make the story appear genuine. This device comes from America where it appears to be very successfully played and is a very profitable transaction for the swindler, who will continue to make a handsome revenue if the public is not warned. The most effective answer is to promise the required help and then immediately to communicate with the police, who, if the case is genuine, can render the assistance needed or, if not, can put a stop to these activities. No doubt the trick will appear again in varying disguises so as to keep it fresh, but the net result will be the same. Yours truly, Vigilance. Another September
0: question. Born today in 1940, who received an Oscar nomination for her role in Shirley Valentine? Collins.
2: Collins.
0: Pauline Collins. Oh, Pauline Collins. Pauline, well done, well done. Anybody can add anything about Pauline Collins? Um, married to John Alderton. Oh, I think that's definitely worth the point. Yes. Anybody else have anything to? Know? No. There's, there's no. Anymore. Kate. No, I was going to say married to John
3: Alderton.
0: But, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yes. Oh, right. One more, and then we go on to Alan and his story. Today, in 1976, Viking Two. Relayed the first pictures of which planet's surface? Mars. Ah, Alan, yes, well done. Anybody add anything to that one? There's not much to add, really. No, I don't do much of astronomy at all, but. (laughs) No, no, no. Okay, fine. Alan. Right. Um, Okay,
1: now, when we were at school, what did you used to call it? Sums, adding up, mathematics, calculus. I'm sure the vast majority of us used to dread those lessons, which of course in later life can lead to embarrassing or expensive mistakes. My own knowledge is quite poor, but I recently read an article by a former maths teacher which proved interesting. So let me extract some of the complexities from his words and see if I can possibly cite Your imagination. Now, humans are not great at large numbers. When the UK debt first passed £1 trillion in 2012, this guy went on to the BBC to explain how big a trillion is. Spoiler, it's big. I used the classic example of counting seconds. One million seconds is just short of 11 days and 14 hours, about a fortnight. One billion seconds is more than 31 years away. And a trillion seconds from now is after the year (laughs) 33,700. People often use million, billion and trillion to mean a big number, Without realising the vast difference between them. I suspect if you surveyed people about the infamous number on the Brexit bus and asked them if the NHS was promised 350 million or 350 billion, you would get a mix of responses. But, of course, they are extremely different numbers. 350 billion would fund the NHS for almost three years while well, 350 million would cover about a day. Humans are easily misled by big numbers without context. Now, moving on to spreadsheets. It's generally acknowledged that one in four spreadsheets contains a maths mistake. And the results can be pretty severe. In 2012, J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, the big bank, had a bad run of spreadsheet luck. In one case, two cells in a spreadsheet were accidentally added instead of being averaged. This caused the calculation of a value at risk to be underestimated and meant that more money could be risked than would be wise. But how much money could actually be lost? Well, combined with some further spreadsheet abuse, The generally accepted figure is that total losses were about $6 billion. Billions of dollars gone in the blink of an Excel formula. Now, engineering and industry provide a rich vein of numerical errors. When the Texaco Oil Company was drilling in Lake Peña, Louisiana in 1980 you had to be careful to avoid a mine belonging to the diamond crystal salt company which had been extracting salt uh, from underneath the lake for six decades this is exactly why we have ge- geometry and trigonometry to calculate exact positions surveyors can use fixed reference points and then measure all the relevant distances and angles to triangulate a new location using, well, triangles. Nothing that much more complicated than the triangle calculations everyone does at school, only on a much bigger scale. Except, it was later reported that one of Texaco's triangulation points was off by 400 feet. At the time, no one noticed, and they drilled until they hit a depth of 1,200 feet, and the rig suddenly shuddered and lurched to the side. The oil workers were a bit surprised, and hastily evacuated the platform. Far more surprised were the salt miners deep below the surface, who were facing a flood of water. There was now a 14-inch drill hole connecting the lake to the vast salt mine, which had a bigger volume than the lake. The entire lake drained into the mine, widening the hole into an enormous whirlpool. Unbelievably, all 55 mine workers were able to evacuate safely, and there was no loss of life. Well, the canal that joined Lake Peña to the Gulf of Mexico reversed direction as water from the ocean flowed to refill the lake. Eleven barges on the canal were washed into the lake, via what was now the largest waterfall in Louisiana's history, and they disappeared into the whirlpool, as did much of the neighbourhood, including 70 acres of surrounding land. When the flow of water finally stopped, only nine of the barges bobbed back to the surface. That simple triangulation error led to so much water and land being washed into the old mines that a 20-foot-deep freshwater lake was now 1,300 feet deep and full of salt water. (laughs) What a dramatic change to the local geography because of a miscalculation. Now, this one was quite amusing. When Pepsi-Cola was running a promotional campaign in 1995 called Pepsi Points, it had a TV commercial showing how the points customers collected from Pepsi products could be traded in for things like t shirts and sunglasses. Then, to end the advert on a joke, they showed a teenager flying to school in an Aviate Harrier jump jet, which he had apparently require, acquired for 7 million Pepsi points. <laughs> it seems the folks in marketing had simply picked 7 million as a number that sounded really big. But was it? At the time, each Harrier jet cost the United States Marine Corps about $20 million. Well, additional Pepsi points could be purchased for 10 cents each. So sure enough, someone tried to claim the jet. John Leonard collected a few Pepsi points, then wrote a check for the remaining $700,000 $10 for postage and handling. Pepsi ended up in the position of having to go to court, to argue that the commercial was just a joke and not a serious offer. Leonard versus PepsiCo Inc. is now part of legal history. The judge sided with the drinks giant. But the moral of the story was that Pepsi had to go through all of that just because someone thought 7 million was a big number, when in this context it certainly wasn't. The advert was re-released, quoting... 700 million points for the fighter jet, and that worked fine. They could have started with that if only someone had thought about it properly.
0: Well, there you go. (laughs) Well, here's another couple of uh, September ones. What television first was achieved by Kenneth Kendall today in 1955?
2: What television...
0: Achieved, what did he achieve uh, in 1955? First colour TV? No,
4: 1955,
0: no.
1: 55?
0: No. Yeah. Hmm.
2: No, stuck on that one.
0: Yeah? Kenneth Kendall? don't remember I Kenneth think Kendall. was a newsreader, but yes. I can't think what. It it's was the first televised news.
2: No, it wasn't. Well,
0: it says it here. Yeah, yeah. well,
2: Mary Peters did it years before that. Yeah. yeah. What television
0: first was achieved by Kenneth Kendall today in 1955? No. Nope. All right, we'll argue with that one. <laughs> Okay, today in well, this is what, what's the matter with <laughs> you? Um, okay, uh, today in 1962, the Beatles began their first recording session at what studio?
3: Abbey Road. Ah, well
0: done, you were first. anybody can extend on that, expand on it. Yeah.
4: He had the level crossing. Yeah. <laughs> Zebra, crossing Zebra crossing. Yeah. <laughs> the very well,
0: it was, it, it, it was roughly. well, it? It's recent, wasn't it? Fifty years ago, was it? That they did that. Thirty years. Yeah. Yeah. Fifty years. Yeah. And And um, who had bare feet?
2: Who
1: had
0: bare feet crossing it?
2: Ah, oh, sounds oh. like Ringo to me, but I wouldn't know. No, it was Paul McCartney.
0: It was. Oh. It was. The, oh, there was lots of things read into it, like he was going to die, or he was. You know, he had a, a some. Dreaded disease or something, and there, was, probably, and there was loads of things about probably that. Probably whim of the moment. Of course, yeah. something. Yeah, but no, there was. Really, uh, he'd um, cross it. Uh, I think they had to do it seven or eight times t- so that they could get the right photograph. And so, after about the fifth time, he took his shoes off for some reason, whether they got <laughs> wet. Well I don't know, but uh, that was the reason.
3: Okay, uh, Kate, over to you. Right. Um, this is a an article that uh Bill Bailey has written he's uh, if you don't know of him he's a comedian um and uh, quite a, a funny raconteur and he's talking about caravan memories which we may all have in different measures from our uh, youth um and uh, he's talking first of all about um being in on location where he's installed in quite a, a sort of a smart um trailer with all the, all the mod cons that he gets now, and then remembering his days of caravanning with his parents, where he begins, I loved the rituals that had to be observed before we set off. My dad would check that the car lights were connected to the van lights, which involved my mum standing behind the van, giving various thumbs up signs and encouraging shouts. I remember the year I was deemed old enough to take on this hugely responsible mantle and felt a surge of pride, a sense of a rite of passage. Food was meticulously stowed away in ever more ingenious compartments. Gas bottles were installed and we were off. Huge extendable wing mirrors were attached, which gave our little Austin the impression of of a large insect. We vanned in South Wales, sometimes in a static van, but mainly we towed the van around the West Country coast. On one trip I caught an eel in a little river that ran through the site. My mother expertly prepared it and we ate it that evening. I don't think I've ever been so delighted with the fish. The brand name of the van was a bailey which was emblazoned across the rear and I always felt slightly embarrassed as if we'd personalised it.' My parents' friend had a caravan, but the bed wasn't long enough for its legs, so he cut a section of the wardrobe door off so he could fit it. He worked as a customs officer, and I guess all those searches of vehicles with secret hidden compartments gave him the idea. Britain spent, on average, around £2.2 billion on caravanning every year. This, to me, is staggering. I can scarcely believe it's possible to spend that all all on caravanning for all time. According to the National Caravan Council, the industry is worth more than £6 a year to the UK economy. What used to be called caravan parks, which sound a bit grim, to be honest, are now known as lifestyle destinations. I'm delighted that caravanning is not only fashionable but booming. The idea of towing your little home with you like overgrown hermit crabs is absurd to many folk why now in the age of cheap air travel would you put yourself through it but there's nothing quite like the sense of freedom and adventure of pulling up and having a brew of hearing the rain drumming on the roof as you pull the blanket round you hearing the hiss from the gas as the kettle boils to a whistle and so on and so forth In an ever-perplexing and uncertain world, caravanning is a little escape, a reminder of a simpler time. And if you take a 4G dongle, you've got Wi-Fi. Happy days.
0: Alan, I believe you've got a follow-up.
1: Yes, it's uh, quite fortuitous. uh, Thank you, Kate, for the introduction here. Um, A couple from a circus go to an adoption agency. But social workers are doubtful about their accommodation, so they produce photos of their 15-metre-long caravan, the back half of which is a beautifully equipped nursery. The social workers then become a bit doubtful about education that would be provided, and the couple from the circus said, well, we'll employ an Oxford don who will teach the child all the subjects along with Mandarin and ICT skills. There are then doubts expressed about the child's healthy upbringing. Our full-time nanny is an expert in paediatric welfare and diet, was the reply. So, social workers are now finally satisfied and ask the couple what age of child they were looking for. Well, it
0: doesn't really matter, as long as he fits in the canon. <laughs> <laughs> OK, uh, just one more. Um, September question. Before we go on to um, Brian, chat show host Russell Harty was born today in 1934. Which singer and actress once assaulted him on air? I, I
4: remember, remember the Yeah, I remember I can't this. Remember yeah. Who that was. yeah,
0: nobody. No, I don't
1: remember the incident. No. no oh, no,
0: you, you watch more highbrow programs, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, Grace Jones. Ah, Brian.
2: Brian, over to you. Well, just a little item entitled, I Just Wonder. A row of bottles on my shelf cause me to analyse myself. One yellow pill I have to pop, it goes to my heart, so it won't stop. A little white one that I take goes to my hands so they won't shake. The blue ones that I use a lot tell me I'm happy when I'm not. The purple pill goes to my brain and tells me that I have no pain. The capsules tell me not to wheeze or cough or choke or even sneeze. The red ones, smallest of them all, go to my blood so I can't fall. The orange ones, very big and bright, they prevent my leg cramps in the night. Such an array of brilliant pills helping to cure all kinds of ills. But what I'd really like to know is what tells each one where to go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) OK, another September one. (laughs) Here we go. Oh, everyone's going to know this. So I want stories. You must know stories about this. Which British fighter pilot portrayed by Kenneth Moore in the film Reach for the Sky um, died in 1982? Douglas Bader Bader? Yeah. Oh Bader, you say Bader, mm. <laughs> say Bada. Any stories, come on.
1: I read one very recently, Funny enough, if I can remember it correctly. He visited a girl's school and was invited to give a speech. And uh, he was talking about the dog fights that the pilots used to get into with the Germans. And uh, he mentioned that in one combat, there was a Fokker on his starboard wing. And the headmistress jumped in very quickly, (laughs) rather embarrassed and red in the face, And he explained to the girls that a Fokker was a German (laughs) warplane. So Bader said, "Um, yes, you're quite right. But he said, there were two other Fokkers (laughs) following me through.
0: (laughs) Uh, <laughs> nobody seems to have noticed, it was it didn't mention that he didn't have two legs; he was legless. <laughs> no, he yeah, lost he, he lost was, two legs was, in yeah. a, trying to uh, do um, um, a, a, a roll, wasn't it? Too low to the ground, and he crashed.
1: Yeah, that was a bit, that was before the war. Oh yeah, before yeah. Yeah. because
0: he yeah. he had a trouble trying to get uh, back into the it's air so force. Events on the he could yeah. actually be anything. Yeah. The other thing which is always um, strange about um, the, the, the Battle of Britain was the big wing, which Douglas Bader was very much in favour of, but um, didn't prove to be extremely successful, if I remember rightly, because it uh, tended to take too long to get the squadrons together to, mm. to get to the battle in time. But I think that's it, sort of one of these points that you know, some people thought it was a good idea and other people didn't. Anyway, however, over to you, Kate?
3: All right. This is called The Sound of Silence. A wise old gentleman retired and bought a modest home near a junior school. The first few weeks of his retirement were peaceful and content until the new school year started. Then, every weekday afternoon, three exuberant school children took great delight in noisily beating every rubbish bin lid they encountered on their way home from school. After enduring two weeks of this, the old man decided to take action. The next afternoon, he walked out to meet the young percussionists as they banged their way down the street. Stopping them, he said, I like what you kids do. I used to do much the same when I was your age. You've got life, you've got rhythm. In fact, I'm so impressed that I'd like to give you a pound, each of you, if you promise to play those bin lids every day. The kids couldn't hardly believe their luck and for the next few days they joyously played the bin lids creating a fearful noise all the way down the street then one afternoon the old man greeted them again but this time he wore a solemn expression kids he said the recession's really putting a big dent in my income from now on i'm afraid i'll only be able to pay you 50 pence to drum on the bins The youngsters were clearly displeased, but they grudgingly accepted the reduced rate and continued their afternoon ruckus. A few days later, the wily old man approached them again as they drummed their way down the street. Listen, he said, I haven't received my pension yet this month, so I'm not going to be able to give you more than 25p. Will that be okay?" A lousy 25 piece, sneered the drum leader. If you think we're going to waste our time drumming these bins for that, you're crazy. No way, mister. We quit. And the old man enjoyed peace and tranquility for the rest of his days. (laughs) Okay. Another
0: September question. Maureen Connolly became the youngest ever winner of the U.S. Tennis Championship in 51. What was her nickname? Little Moe. Exactly. Little Mo. Yeah, there was there was one one other thing. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure I remember this correctly. Um, she originally was a left hander. Um, yeah, and because uh, there was never anybody that won anything in tennis, the big championships, there, she swapped over and learned how to play right handed. Golly. yeah. <laughs> That was uh, something I remember from years ago when they used to do those things in black and white on television, you know, and I just watched them endlessly.
2: <laughs> right, whose goes is it? Oh, Brian. Well, this is a longish one, but it's an interesting story. Comes under the heading, really, of life is full of if-onlys. This relates to King George V. One wonders, did he ever regret... Turning down that lovely girl, Lady Rosemary Leveson Gower, when his son and heir, the Prince of Wales, the future Edward VIII, asked for permission to marry her just after the First World War. She had all the claims by birth and prestige to fit the position of future Queen. Her family's London home was Stafford House, and few of the royal palaces of Europe could match it for splendour. Her father, the Duke of Sutherland, owned properties in Scotland and the south of England in addition to two great country seats in the Midlands. The family exercised a powerful influence in the country and employed a vast workforce in the West Midlands. The Duke's wealth, social position, influence combined to make up the greatest landed estate in England. And the family's benevolence around the country was well known and respected. So how astonishing... The lovely daughter of the family was deemed to be unsuitable for marriage to the heir to the throne. The prince had met the girl in France when he was serving with the forces and she was a nurse in hospital there. He came unexpectedly into the ward where she was sitting beside a grievously wounded man suffering from shell shock. Rosemary had spent hours with the patient trying to coax life and speech back into him. She turned and saw a slight young man whose army uniform became him. The peak cap added keenness and purpose to the blue eyes which had gazed steadily out from innumerable press photographs and family portraits for years past. Until now, this young prince had been known mainly as a very restless young man who had found his solace largely with older and usually married women. The couple met only occasionally during the rest of the war, and their mutual attraction gradually became known. The prince and this lovely girl with a delightful smile and sense of humour had survived the dreadful scenes she'd witnessed in France, and she was mature, and she at one point confided to a close friend about Prince Edward. He's like a child weak and very irresponsible but you know i think i could make something of him but it was not to be the king refused to give his consent he would nothing against rosemary herself but her mother millicent the former duchess of sutherland was not the kind of mother-in-law that would be welcome in royal circles at those times in the five years which had followed the duke's death, she had proved to be a very merry widow. Within the first year, she married again and almost as quickly divorced the second husband. She married again, this time to a man with an unsavoury reputation. To make things worse, her brother, Rosemary's uncle, of course, he was the Earl of rosslyn he married and divorced almost as rapidly in those years when divorce was frowned upon in England. The Earl was a professional gambler, lost his fortune, went bankrupt three times and fled the country. It was he, indeed, who inspired the famous ditty of the man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo. Queen Mary supported her husband in his refusal and the prince turned away, yet again, bitterly resenting the restrictions his royal prestige demanded. He somehow broke the news to Rosemary by intimating that his parents wished him to marry a princess from Europe. Rosemary withdrew from this situation, even when the real reason emerged, with all the dignity of a queen. A little over a year later, she married Eric, Viscount Ednam, son of the Earl of Dudley, The villagers and staff from Himley Hall in Worcestershire lined the roads and the driveway leading up to Himley Hall to welcome their new charming Viscountess. The Dudleys had been close associates of the royal family for three generations. The young couple settled to a busy, happy, well-run establishment. It fell to the lot of Lady Ednam to entertain the still restless Bachelor Prince Edward from time to time in their home. She was always the gracious hostess and the prince became sponsor to the eldest of her three sons. Her grace and charm enhanced many events in the county and delighted the general public. Who knows? Perhaps life in Worcestershire with its village associations, its kindly patronage and work among the community provided a happier, more personal kingdom than did the London scene. As for George V, were there any regrets? There was deep anxiety as the old king's life drew to its close and by then gossip was rife about the 40-year-old heir's involvement with Mrs. Wallace Simpson. The dying king was heard to groan, that boy will ruin himself within a year and history affords the sequel to that drama. Sadly, Rosemary's life was not to be a long one. She was killed in an air disaster 12 years after her marriage and the prince was said to be much affected by the news. Subsequently, her widower inherited his father's title and estates and married again some years later. An unusual tribute came from Rosemary's successor, the then new Lady Dudley. She recorded in her own autobiography, Eric had first been married... To an enchanting creature Lady Rosemary Leveson Gower Second choice in marriage as well as many other directions is not necessarily second best as many a couple will testify
0: Right, Brian and Alan have got a, well it's not a story it's, the, uh, it's about a cabinet meeting in the 40s about the expansion of Heathrow and it just shows you that in the 1940s, how naive even the government was about how popular air travel would be.
2: Brian. Right. The Cabinet has considered a memorandum by the Secretary of State for Dominion Affairs reporting the conclusions of the Civil Aviation Committee on the proposals of the Minister of Civil Aviation for the establishment at Heathrow of the main international terminal airport for the United Kingdom. The Secretary of State said that after considering a report by an interdepartmental committee, the Civil Aviation Committee had agreed that the site at Heathrow should be developed on the lines proposed by the Minister of Civil Aviation. In particular... They were satisfied that there was a case for a triple three-directional runway system and that with this in view an area of about 1,600 acres should be acquired on the north of the Bath Road in addition to the larger area south of that road. They also recommend the acquisition of part of the Cranford Park estate lying between the eastern boundary of the proposed airport and Heston Aerodrome. If further consideration of the layout showed that this land was not needed for the airport, it could be surrendered. It would also be necessary to acquire some part of the sludge disposal works near Stanwell. A hybrid bill would be required to authorise the acquisition of the land needed for the airport. To ensure the safety of aircraft... Leaving
1: or approaching the airport building development in the vicinity would have to be specially controlled and the Southall gas holder would have to be removed a new road would have to be constructed connected the proposed southern Slough Maidenhead bypass with the Great West Road at Brentford it was thought that surface rail access need not be provided unless some experience of the operation of the airport had been gained But it was proposed that a scheme should be prepared for extending the Underground Railway from Hounslow West Station to the airport. The estimated cost of acquiring the land and carrying out the works of construction was 25 to 67 millions. And if to this was added the cost of road and Underground Railway access and of navigational aids, the all in cost was likely to amount to about £30 million. The constructional costs have been based on present prices, <coughs> on the assumption that the most up-to-date and economical methods were used. But it had not been possible for the committee to make any independent check of the estimates submitted to them. It would be desirable that the Treasury and the Ministry of Civil Aviation should exercise a close scrutiny over the costs. The Civil Aviation Committee had been unable to arrive at any reliable estimate of the revenue to be derived from the airport, but they considered that at the best it would not do more
2: than cover running costs. The Chancellor of the Exchequer then said that while he accepted the need for providing an international airport at Heathrow, he was concerned at the very large expenditure involved. He was not satisfied that a case had been made out for acquiring at this stage any of the additional land north of the Bath Road, and he strongly urged that this part of the scheme should be postponed. He also hoped that it would be possible to reduce substantially the present estimates of construction costs when specifications of the works involved were drawn up in greater detail. And for this purpose, he asked that the Treasury should be kept in close touch with the detailed working out of the scheme.
1: Discussion first turned on the question whether, in view of the weather conditions in the Heathrow area, and the extent to which the creation of an international airport would involve the loss of housing accommodation and of valuable agricultural land, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) it would not be preferable ...to select an alternative site further out of London. It was pointed out that there were strong arguments in favour of siting the terminal airport... ...as near as possible to the centre of London. Over 50 sites in the neighbourhood of London had been surveyed... ...and the Ministry of Civil Aviation had no doubt... ...that Heathrow was the only site within easy reach of London... ...which fulfilled the necessary requirements... Very large sums had already been
2: spent on work at Heathrow. Discussion then turned on the question whether the area north of the Bath Road should be acquired immediately. It was urged, on the one hand, that this part of the scheme would not be developed until 1950 and that in view of the projected legislation for the control of land use and the acquisition of land, there was no reason to suppose that the cost of acquiring this land would be substantially greater at a later stage than it would be now. It was also suggested that by rearranging the layout and removing the terminal buildings from the centre of the site, it might be possible to fit into the area south of the Bath Road all three of the groups of three-directional runways. As regards the Cranford Park estate, it was pointed out that the Minister of Civil Aviation had not asked that this land should be included in the area required for the airport. On the other hand it was contended that
1: all previous experience had shown the advisability of acquiring an ample area of land in order to allow for unforeseen developments. In the opinion of the Ministry of Town and Country Planning, the most economical and satisfactory means of securing that the area north of the Bath Road was not developed in a manner that would prejudice the subsequent extension of the airport in that direction was to purchase the area outright rather than seek to restrict its development by planning control. It was also urged that unless the area north of the Bath Road were acquired forthwith, it would be impossible to plan satisfactorily the development of the main roads in this neighbourhood. While the Cranford Park area was not required for the airport, it lay between two large areas of land which would be under public ownership. And from the point of view of good estate management, it was desirable that this narrow strip of land should be brought under the control of the owner of the two adjacent areas. There would be no difficulty in putting it to profitable use. As regards the suggestion that all nine runways might be provided in the area south of the Bath Road, it was explained that there were substantial advantages in placing the terminal buildings in the centre of the airport. And that even if this were not done, it was extremely doubtful whether all the necessary runways could be fitted into the area south of the road.
2: Other points in discussion were: A, the Minister of Health stressed the importance of maintaining strict control of the constructional costs from the point of view of preventing undue competition with house building in the neighbourhood. The Minister of Civil Aviation said that the construction of the London airport at Heathrow would not, so far as could be foreseen, make it unnecessary to use Northolt for civil traffic. The Cabinet were informed that the Minister of Town and Country Planning supported the proposals of the Minister of Civil Aviation on planning grounds. It was important, however, that the planning authorities concerned should be given early information about the scheme so that they might adjust the plans which they were preparing.
1: The Chancellor of the Exchequer said that it was proposed to meet the cost of the scheme out of revenue. It was suggested that the Treasury should consider the alternative of meeting this capital expenditure by loan and thus spreading the annual charge over a longer period. The Lord Privy Seal pointed out that the proceedings on the proposed hybrid bill for the acquisition of land were likely to be protracted and emphasised the importance of introducing the bill at a very early date if it was to be passed during the current session.
0: I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? The, uh, the actual amount of land that they were talking about is minuscule compared with the size. How ended
4: up. Yeah,
0: exactly. So they just did not foresee the how, yeah, how great air travel would be, how popular it would be, etc., etc., etc. Right, 6th of September. Which London cricket ground was used as a test venue for the first time today, 6th of September, 1880? Yeah. Going to be Lord, yes, that was the oval. oval. Oval, yes. Yeah. All right, you get the point. Then. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyone expand on that? Well, I imagine it was the Australians. Oh no, sorry. I mean, I, well, I, mean, I assume you're right. Yes, I <laughs> don't. Know. I, I don't know. Yeah, but um, I can only remember that the Oval is near Kennington. No. Oh, wow. <laughs> well done. South of the river. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tribal country. Well. <laughs> right, this is an interesting again. 6th of September, and this one goes back to 1983. Britain's first neighbourhood watch scheme was set up today in which city?
2: Golly, that's a good, it's a good. Pure guess, no idea, really. Birmingham?
0: No. No.
1: Manchester? No. Bristol.
0: No. 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 The obvious one. London? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, oh well, this one, you know the answer to that one. We'll have one more. well, uh, oh, we don't know the answer to that. I didn't even know. Um, oh, yeah, the, um, I, I know Kate will know the answer to this. And she'll be able to expand on it so she gets the point. <laughs> <laughs> Who became the heroine of the Longstone Lighthouse today? 7th of September this time, in 1838, Grace, when she...
2: Grace, she, Grace, darling, Grace darling.
0: Darling. You didn't let me finish the question. <laughs> <laughs> he only did that so he could get in before you.
2: <laughs> I know nothing about her.
0: Expand, no, expand, expand. She and her
2: father did it, I think. Yes, She's right. the daughter of the lighthouse. <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> yeah.
1: Something like
0: that, yeah. So, well, but um, she became so famous, and this is, because we went to see her grave. Uh, um, uh, she became so famous that people kept writing to her to send them locks of her hair. She started running short of hair. <laughs> That ah. was getting silly. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Um, who's next? I believe it's you, Kate.
3: Right. Here's an amusing story called The Talkative Wife. A police officer pulled over a speeding car. The officer told the middle-aged driver, I clocked you at over 80 miles an hour, sir. I don't understand it, officer, said the driver. I had the car on cruise control at 60. Perhaps your radar gun is faulty. Without looking up from her knitting, the driver's wife in the passenger seat said, Don't be silly, dear. You know this car doesn't have cruise control. <laughs> As the officer started to write out a ticket, the driver turned to his wife and growled, Can't you keep your mouth shut for once? The wife smiled sweetly and replied, You should be grateful your radar detector went off when it did. <laughs> As the officer made out a second ticket for possessing an illegal radar detector unit, the driver glowered at his wife and said through clenched teeth, Damn it, woman, can't you ever keep your mouth shut? The officer frowned. And I noticed that you're not wearing your seatbelt, sir. That's an automatic £30 fine, he said. The driver explained, What do you see, officer? I had it on, but I took it off when you pulled me over so that I could get my licence out of my back pocket. The wife interrupted, no, dear, you know very well that you didn't have your seatbelt on. You never wear it when you're driving. <laughs> As the officer wrote out a third ticket for seatbelt violation, the driver turned to his wife and yelled, for the last time, woman, shut up. The police officer looked over to the wife. Does your husband always talk to you like this? She, he, she asked. He asked. No, officer, she replied. Only when he's been drinking. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Come on, let's
5: have another
3: one, please. Oh, oh I don't know. I don't know. Because Brian and Alan had a very
0: long. Oh, Alan. Alan's got one ready. Good. On.
1: Mm.
0: Alan. Very short
1: one. Um, the Spanish singer Julio Iglesias was on UK television with British TV host Anne Diamond and also a guest from Australia. Julio used the word manana and Diamond asked him to explain what it meant. He said that the term means maybe the job will be done tomorrow. Maybe the next day. Maybe the day after that. Or perhaps next week. Next month. Next year. Who really cares? The host turned to Albert Yatapingu from the Gumbaggeri tribe who was also on the show. She asked him if there is an equivalent term in his native language. Nah, he replied. In Australia, we don't have a word to describe
3: that degree of urgency.
0: <laughs> OK, go on, another one from you. Then right.
3: I expect you've all heard of the, the, film, the song, songs for swinging lovers or swinging whatever. And these are songs for swingers of all sorts. So here's some, some funnies. Songs for swinging nuns. I left my heart with some Franciscans. Songs for swinging bakers. Kiss me buns and kiss me pies and kiss Mm -hmm. me buns again. Mm -hmm. If I get a cake, uh, I get a cake out of you. Sorry, I messed that one up. Songs for swinging cricketers. Amazing W.G. Grace. Mm -hmm. Songs for swinging oyster fishermen. Has anybody seen my pearl? Songs for Swinging Longbow Manufacturers, I've Got You Under My Skin, with with Y-E-W there. Songs for Swinging Bookworms, Paperback Biter, credit to the Beatles. Um, Songs for Swinging Murderers, Stranglers in the Night. Songs for Swinging Bedbugs on the Sheet where You Live. (laughs) And now, something called Where's the Baby?, Having undergone fertility treatment, a woman was able to give birth at the age of 66. When she was discharged from hospital, her relatives came to visit. Can we see the baby, they asked. Not yet, replied the 66-year-old mother. Fifteen minutes later, they asked again, can we see the baby? Not yet, she said. Another 15 minutes passed and they asked again, can we see the baby? Not yet, said the mother. By now, the relatives were getting extremely impatient. Well, when can we see the baby? When it cries. Why do we have to wait until the baby cries? Because then I'll remember where I've put it.
1: (laughs) Okay,
0: a quick one before um, Brian. September the 8th, this is. Uh, Born today in 1925, which zany comedian made his name on the radio before moving into films? I think you're going to need a clue for this one.
1: Mm.
0: How is he? You're very Uh, close.
1: uh, Spoken,
0: by no, brought, <laughs> the other one. <laughs> oh, yeah. All of them. Say yeah. it, say it, say it. Well,
2: there's Michael Bentine. And, no, yes. the other one. <laughs> Is
4: there
0: one? Sellers Yes, or well, or done, Peter Sellers. well done, oh, well I've got to give you a point for that. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, Peter Sellers, 1925. Yeah, I sort of, sort of, you know, it seems oh, too, it seems too so? long ago it for keeps, him, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Brian. Well, we're back to the letters to the editor of the Times. We're now up to February 1929 with a heartfelt letter from a club golfer in praise of the caddies. Sir, this will never do. For five days in the week we avail ourselves of the Times as it so competently competently deals with the less important affairs of life such as politics, domestic or foreign fears of a general election, arrivals, departures of great people, or whatever. But on the sixth day, the times is exalted in our eyes, for then your golf correspondent, in a column of wisdom, humour, and unmatched literary charm, deals with the one real event in life. But this week, for the first time, he has deeply shocked and disappointed us all. I'm but a rabbit with a handicap of 24, if I'm lucky, and a compassionate heart always. because I can't bear to see a fellow creature suffer. It's for this reason, amongst others, I rarely find myself able to inflict upon an opponent the anguish of defeat. However, today I suffer for a whole world of golf caddies. They are learned in a message, almost sounding a note of disdain, that the verb which signifies their full activity, is to carry. By what restriction of mind can anyone suppose that this is adequate? Does not a caddy, in truth, take charge of our lives and control all our thoughts and actions while we are in his august company? He it is who comforts us in our time of sorrow, encourages us in moments of doubt, inspires us to that little added effort which, when crowned with rare success, brings a joy that nothing else can offer. It is he who, with majestic gravity and indisputable authority, hands to us the club he thinks most fitted to our meagre power. It is he who counsels us in times of crisis, urging that we should runner-up or loft her or Take a line a wee bit to the left with a shade of slice. Does he not enjoin us with magisterial right not to raise our head? Are we not most properly rebuked when our left knee sags or our right elbow soars or our body's too rigid and our eyes go roaming? Does he not count our strokes with remorseless and unpardonable accuracy? Keeping all the while a watchful eye on our opponent's scores, does he not speak of our honour and is not his exhortation that we must win this whole? Does he not make us feel that some share of happiness or of misery will be his in our moment of victory or defeat? Does he not, with most subtle but delicious flattery, coax us to a belief that only if we had time to play a wee bit oftener we could reach the dignity of a single-figure handicap? Does he not hold aloft the flag as though it were indeed our standard, inspiring a reluctant ball at last to gain the hole? Does such a man do nothing but carry for us? Of course, he does infinitely more. He caddies for us. Bless him.
0: Right. Two
2: very easy September questions. I think they're easy.
0: Born today in 1941... Which singer had 60s hits with "My Girl" and "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay"?
3: Otis
2: Redding. Well done,
0: well done. Right, this is for points. What year did he die in the air crash?
2: Oh, dear.
0: Oh. No idea. No. Fifty-five. Oh no, that's much later than that. Much later.
2: Eighty-seven. Yes. 20
0: years out, mm. <laughs> 67 in mm. fact, yeah, mm. Mm. And, oh, and name the architect of the Long March who died today in 1976, Mao Zedong, He's very good, mm. yeah, and um, uh, I think this is right, I, I, I'm doing this from memory, so if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but what did Mao Tung have in common with Casanova? You have five seconds, four mm. seconds. Did you have the same birthday? No, no, no. Um, originally, they were both librarians. Ah, oh,
2: very all good.
0: Right. Oh, right. I, I seem to remember that f- from a, a radio program a long time ago, but I have been misled by Radio 4 before. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all?
0: Yeah, definitely. The, the I mean, I don't know whether whether you No, no but on Radio 4 one day, they announced with Great sincerity that the name of the airplane that Buddy Holly died was um, American Pie, and later on, after saying this to hundreds of people, uh, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> it, wasn't. Yeah. it wasn't American yeah. Pie at all. Of course, that was Don McLean's song, wasn't it? Yeah. American yeah. Pie. Yeah. Anyway, that was Radio Four. And the other one was um, they said um, um, Laurel or what's his name? Stan Laurel. Stan Laurel was mm. Clint Eastwood's father, <laughs> and they said this. <laughs> on radio four and of course i go and tell people that i had a complete buffoon of myself and of course it wasn't true and that was true i know anybody else got them you know because cr-
1: sounds like facebook didn't <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: radio three's not exempt from these things there was a prom concert last week with a word a uh, very nice work by eric corngold And the commentator in the Albert Hall said, of course, Corngold had the great advantage in his early life in Europe of being tutored by Brahms. Brahms died in 1897. Corngold was born in
4: 1897.
0: Obviously the person that that said it was a bit Brahms and Liszt. (laughs) (laughs) Alan, I believe it's your turn.
1: Yes, I have a weather report here. The Arctic Ocean is warming up. Icebergs are growing scarcer and in some places the seals are finding the water too hot, according to a report to the Commerce Department yesterday from the consulate at Bergen, Norway. Reports from fishermen, seal hunters and explorers all point to a radical change in climate conditions and hitherto unheard of temperatures in the Arctic zone. Exploration expeditions report that scarcely any ice has been met as far north as 81 degrees 29 minutes. Sounding to a depth of 3,100 metres showed the Gulf Stream still very warm and great masses of ice have been replaced by moraines of earth and stones, the report continued, while at many points well-known glaciers have entirely disappeared. Very few seals, no white fish are found in the eastern Arctic while vast shoals of herring and smelts which have never before ventured so far north are being encountered in the old seal fishing grounds. Within a few years it is predicted that due to ice melt the sea will rise and make most coastal cities uninhabitable. Oh, I should have said... I neglected to mention that this report was from November the 2nd, 1922. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) right. As reported by AP and published in the Washington Post 96 years ago. So this climate change must have been caused by Model T Ford emissions or possibly horse farts. Oh, God.
0: This is um, questions from September the 10th. Who organised a canine show to promote his dog, Biscuit, and died today, September the 10th, in 1938? It's Croft. Yeah, I'll give you that, because it's Charlie, Charles Croft or whatever. Right, Okay. one more. Oh, the traitor, Vidcon... Quisling was sentenced to death today in nineteen forty five. What was his nationality? No. Oh well well done. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I I I was I, I suddenly yeah, yeah, okay. I was misled by that one. I was thinking it was something else. In which European city did the world's first motorway open today in nineteen twenty one?
2: 1921?
0: Yeah, in which European city did the world's first motorway open today in 1921? Golly, as early as that? Yeah. Mm. No idea. Oh, you can guess.
3: Berlin. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, Berlin. Um, Oh, it's Kate, isn't it?
3: Kate. Okay. For the first time in many years, a man decided to go to the cinema. After buying his ticket, he stopped at the concession stand to buy some popcorn. Handing the attendant one pound fifty, he couldn't help but comment, "The last time I came to the to the cinema, popcorn cost only thirty pence." Well, sir," replied the attendant with a shy smile, "You're really going to enjoy yourself this time. We have sound now." <laughs> <laughs> no, what's on? That come on, come on, you. I can't keep on. you know you're not getting your right. bit in here. <laughs> bill who is due to retire from the building trade in a few months, is often the butt of his colleagues' jokes and is getting fed up with them, always taunting him about his age and failing strength and failing other things too. He turns to Liam, the youngest of the builders, always showing off his muscles and says, see that wheelbarrow there? I bet I can push it over that wall, carrying a load that you won't be able to push back. A doddle, thinks the younger man. No way is there a load that you can push that I can't. You're on. All right then, says Bill, indicating the wheelbarrow, and adds hop in lad. <laughs>
0: okay. Actor Herbert Lom was born today, september the eleventh, in nineteen seventeen. Which character did he play in the Pink Panther films? Yeah, he was the
2: police. Superintendent, can't remember the title. The one
0: that tried to kill yes. <laughs> yes. Clouseau. Yes. Yeah, he was a chief yes. Inspector. Yes. inspector. Can't remember. No, no. 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 Mm-hmm. Dreyfus. Oh, yes. yes, yes. Uh, born today, it's September 11th again, in 1885, the son of a coal miner who wrote Lady Chatterley's Lover.
2: D.H. Lawrence. Lawrence. Yeah.
0: Anything? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember this. Not in I'm No. <laughs> do you remember what. You can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, Duncan's got his hand on the controls already. <laughs> um, do, you, do you remember um, the famous quote from the trial when they wanted to um, uh, oh, publish yes. it?
2: W- would you want your servants to read?
4: <laughs> yeah, that's it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more thing. Oh, yeah, okay. What football trophy was stolen from Birmingham Uh today in 1895? The FA Cup. Yeah, well done, Brian.
2: Aston Villa
0: just won it. Yes. That's worth it, it? <laughs> uh, who's it. Who's next? Oh, Alan, I believe it's... Is it, Alan? You asked me to do one. Oh, no, carry on. It's short No, Karen, one. Karen, Karen, I just
2: Karen. want to emphasise that in The Times uh, over the last 100 years, as well as discussing and uh, having correspondence on weighty matters of national and international importance, they also come back to things such as we've just heard about the game of golf. And then in January 1934, there was correspondence on the very important matter, the pork sausage... Sir, as one of a family of pork sausage manufacturers established for nearly 60 years, I claim to be able to answer the questions put by your previous correspondents on this matter. If one may use the term, a thoroughbred pork sausage should only contain the best pork and good seasoning, but a half-bred sausage will contain a large percentage of bread or biscuit powder. The colour is accounted for in the making if a pork sausage appears deadly pale it contains too much fat meat that with a pinky tint contains too much lean meat there's no such thing as a freckled sausage skin and the plymouth rock appearance of a sausage is due to the herbs used for flavoring showing through its filmy jacket in cooking a sausage it needs patient coercion not fierce cremation and there would be no shrinking or bursting if it were cooked by the old-fashioned Dutch oven. It would then arrive at table, brown-jacketed and retaining its rotund dignity. Sausages should never be cooked in fat. A good pork sausage makes its own bed of fat in which to lie as it is slowly cooked. Never behave harshly to a sausage by pricking it with a fork, for it is found to retaliate by spitting fat at you and bursting before your eyes. As to the opinion of the legal profession, I once knew a circuit judge who gave pork sausages a splendid character and taking into consideration the millions of sausages consumed, all different, in make and flavour, it's remarkable how the palate of the public is so easily satisfied.
0: Alan, I believe you have a weird recipe and an explanation for it about the woodcock. About the woodcock. About the pears. All oh, right, the pears. There's one there about woodcock. Go to the next one. Oh, is it the one before that? No, the page before that. Page before that. Is
1: Let's it? Is
0: that the woodcock seed cake? Oh, good lord, that must oh, be woodcock Yeah, you are. we got
1: it. There's I've got it. Yeah,
2: I've got it now. With oh.
0: our usual professional approach, this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: finely tuned and honed months of
1: rehearsal oh yes absolutely a Worcestershire woman eats addicts (laughs) this old Worcestershire saying may be just a set of fun words emphasising a feature of local pronunciation but the Worcestershire woman could well have eaten woodcock for the birds do breed in the county one pair to every 200 acres has been estimated for the wire forest area, with additional migrant birds in winter. Norman Hickin, in The Natural History of the English Forest, calls it an extraordinary bird, about whose everyday life there is much fascination, mystery and conjecture. He reports that the famous Ludwig Koch never succeeded in recording the strange croak or groan followed by a high-pitched whistle that the male woodcock makes on summer nights. The birds have been well liked as food for many centuries and are still served in the traditional manner on a piece of bread or toast to catch the gravy and butter in which they have been cooked. The Worcestershire woman of the past must have belonged to the landlord class of society for there were stringent game laws that made the taking of woodcock Another game, an offence for the lower orders. Uh, If you're interested and would like to partake with this recipe, roast woodcock. Allow at least one bird per person. Birds should be hung for two to three days and should not be drawn. Traditionally, the head with the long beak is left on two, but you you may prefer to remove the head. Place each bird on a slice of crustless, lightly done toast. Cover the breast with bacon. Cook in a hot oven, 400 Fahrenheit for 15 minutes. Now take the birds from the oven, remove the intestines, discarding the gizzards, but spreading the rest, called the trail, on the toast. Sprinkle with coarsely ground black pepper and a small amount of brandy. Place the birds back on the toasts and return to the oven for two minutes. Serve very hot. A garnish of watercress would be quite suitable.
0: You can just imagine people rushing out from their semi D's now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to do that. Kate. Yeah.
3: Right. Fossils were uncovered at a Worcestershire nature reserve as two local organisations joined forces to remove scrub from a rock face. Volunteers from Worcestershire Wildlife Trust and the Herefordshire and Worcestershire Earth Heritage Trust came together to clear the face of an old quarry at Alfrick near Malvern. Although it is now a quiet nature reserve, Black House Wood once rang to the sound of stone being hand quarried. Dominique Crabb of the Wildlife Trust said Black House Wood and the adjacent Cruise Hill Wood form a really important part in the chain of woodlands running up from the Malvern Hills to the Wyre Forest. We think of them now as quiet places to enjoy a walk, but 150 years ago that would have been very different. There were many quarries in the area. Stone was worked by hand with shovels and picks. The evidence can still be seen today and the quarries are of interest not just to naturalists who explore the micro-habitats in them, but also to geologists who can explore the rocks and fossils found there. One of the quarries, designated a local geological site, is home to one of just three bands of Silurian limestone to the west and north of the Morvans. Quarrying at this site followed a particularly desirable layer of limestone underneath layers of clay formed by chemical alteration of volcanic ash that fell and settled on the seabed in the area about 425 million years ago. Most of us forget or just don't realise that this part of Worcestershire used to be under a tropical sea so it's not really surprising that we come across a block of limestone with several fossils in it. We found a branchiopod which is a marine animal that lived on the seabed as well as a coral. Both lived here more than 400 million years ago.
0: Right, okay, here's another September question. Which American president married today, that's September the 12th, 1953, and had a reputation as a notorious philanderer? John F. Kennedy. John John F. Kennedy. Kennedy. Carter? He was a peanut man. (laughs) He was a peanut (laughs) man. Yes, he was indeed. And he mucked up the um, the rescue from uh, Iran, wasn't it? When uh, they had the American consulate or embassy. Um, yeah, JFK. There must be a story you know about JFK, surely.
2: Not repeatable in present company. <laughs> well, I, yeah. Who's who
0: saying? All right. Who's saying happy birthday? Happy oh, birthday, hey? Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah. To you. He wouldn't speak to her again after that. I think <laughs> he really cut himself off from that relationship. Right. Which landmark? in London, was erected on the embankment today, September the 12th, in 1878. Cleopatra's needle. Well done. You're so knowledgeable, you two. And Kate as well. She was there. OK, you've got one more, haven't you, Brian? And to to finish off, uh, Kate's got a poem. So, Brian, Kate...
2: OK, a short one. um, Just continuing this uh, important matters in the letters to the Times, we now move on to April 1935 with a letter relating to children's pocket money. A somewhat severe attitude, you might think. The points about children's pocket money raised in the interesting letter by Mr. St. Irvin have many bearings of a profoundly fundamental nature, the most vital being character building. The prevalence of regular pocket money is, in my opinion, one of the keys to that lack of adult responsibility about money which is widely deplored. Few parents, however, realize it and think they're being kind to their children when they give them a little money to spend as regular pocket money. They are not being kind. They are wasting one of the most valuable assets they could enlist on the side of independence of character. I have never given and never will give pocket money to my children. My son, who is now 11, has earned everything he spent, with the exception of a few money gifts on recognised occasions such as birthdays. From the age of four, he was interested in the household wages book and asked for a book of his own, and later began to earn money entering it up in the wages book and signing for it. Looking back at that little record, one finds items such as this: to cleaning white paint in the drawing-room twopence, to laying turf straight in the garden, four pence, to chopping wood two pence, felling a tree, sixpence, etc. An intelligent and thoughtful parent can find innumerable jobs, especially in the country where a child can give honest work for pence sufficient to supply him with enough or more pocket money than his less fortunate comrades have given to them. That free gift of money bred in their bones, the false idea that money is obtainable without work and that they're entitled to a share of the family income without contributing anything in exchange." Were a wages book established in every home, the national character would undoubtedly gain by it and children have a much greater and more real interest in their occupations. Yours faithfully, and this letter came from Mary C. Stopes. Think what you will of that, the pioneer in birth control.
0: Um, I've just been told by Duncan that we've got about nine or ten minutes still to go. So, um, Alan and Brian, could you do places from Worcester Folklore, please? Yeah.
2: Sayings under the heading Pride and Prejudice, Sayings like all about Malvern Hill, A man may live as long as he will and blessed is the eye between seven and Y. certainly express local pride so does the claim that something shines like worcester again gloucester yet the ladies of worcester were proverbially held to be poor proud and pretty the mention of several places including pershaw once elicited the invariable comment of god help us a reference to the fabled poverty of the inhabitants Tibeton, near-oddingly, had a stone
1: church, a wooden steeple, a drunken parson, a wicked people. One rhyme makes no comment, perhaps none is needed, so long as one knows that the piddle is a stream, tributary of the River Avon.
2: Norton, Beecham, Peopleton and Crow, North piddle, wire piddle, piddle in the hole. A variation on the rhyme begins with the words, There's Upton Snodsbury, and is shown on the postcard we have in front of us at the moment. Another list simply enumerates the hamlets and villages between Inkborough and Evesham, whose names derive from the Old English chlench, meaning hill, such as Lenchwick, Sheriff's Lench, H Lench, Church Lench, Ablench, and Rouse Lench. Bad feeling between pairs of neighbouring settlements was once endemic. The people of Arley Kings, believing themselves a cut above their neighbours at Stourport on the other side of the River Severn, claimed that they themselves lived on Christian shores. The notion may date back to the 11th century when Arley Kings was owned by Queen Edith, the wife of Edward the Confessor. The inveterate hostility between the people of Kidderminster and Beaudley perhaps led to the latter to protest too much.
1: For ringers, singers and a crier, Beaudley excelled all Worcestershire. Even so, the sentiments expressed lack the strength of antipathy towards a Gloucestershire neighbour revealed in this rhyme, Worcester for beauty, Mulvern for wit, Upton for liver, and Tewkesbury for something that rhymes with wit. Some villages like to emphasise their superiority over neighbouring towns. The little settlement of Dodderhill looks down on Droitwich both literally and figuratively. Whoever has been to Dodderhill and down on Droitwich gazed, will not, if he should go to hell,
2: be very much amazed. Church Honeybourne made the claim that there was a church at Honeybourne when Evesham was but bush and thorn. This leads on, us on from derogatory and congratulatory remarks to the derivation of place names. A 13th century seal of Evesham Abbey shows a swineherd looking up at a vision of the Virgin Mary. The inscription beneath, translated into modern English, reads... Eves dwelt here,
1: and his swine therefore called this Evesham.
2: The story is that a swineherd, or Eof, was tending his pigs by the river Avon when he heard celestial harmonies and saw a vision of the Virgin. He reported the experience to his master, Egwin, Bishop of Worcester, who hurried to the spot and saw the same vision. The Virgin told him to build... An abbey there, in what was the wilderness of Blackenhurst. The new church was dedicated in 714, and the place came to be called Even's Home, later Evesham. In 2004, Witchhaven District Council granted planning commission for a statue of Eve to be erected in the marketplace at Evesham. The 10 or 12 feet high figure, designed by a Worcester artist, John McKenna, Required funding of some £65,000 and this was raised by public appeal. Such attempts at etymology are often disputed by scholars. Kidderminster comes from Siddur's Minster, but that does not prevent a different and no doubt tongue in cheek explanation.
1: King Cador saw a pretty maid. King Cador would have kissed her. The damsel
2: slipped aside and said, King Cador, you have missed her. The pedigree of oddingly is also far-fetched. Two Saxon giants, Odd and Dingley, fought on a common until the former was obliged to concede with the words, O Dingley, O Dingley, spare my breath. This shall be called oddingly Heath. There may or may not have been a Dingley, but there was a historical Oddo or Odder, a Mercian nobleman who is buried in Pershore Abbey. Dudley and Doddingtree are both named after him, and so is Oddingley, which means clearing of the people of Odder. The name of Bromsgrove is supposed to stem from Boar's Grove, after the place where a legendary wild boar was slain. The man responsible, Sir Humphrey Stafford, was himself killed in 1450 during the rebellion of Jack Cade, and is buried in Bromsgrove Church. Another version of the story, and there usually is another version, claims the victor to be Sir Rylas Bolton, who was the subject of a ballad entitled The Jovial Hunter. And Until 1806, two stones weighing several tons stood in front of Bromsgrove Town Hall. When the road was paved, they were too big to move, so great pits were dug and they were buried on the spot. Supposedly, they were originally put there by the jovial hunter who shook them out of his shoe because they were hurting his feet. Another explanation is that there was a disagreement between the hunter and his rival who lived at Malvern. They launched huge stones at each other, the hunter from Licky, the other from the Malvern Hills, and these collided in flight to fall to earth in Bromsgrove.
0: Great. Right, Kate, over to you to finish off.
3: The popular singer Tony Bennett paid a charity visit to a care home to cheer up the elderly residents. However, he was dismayed that none of the residents appeared to recognise him. Finally, in frustration, he went up to one old lady and said, do you know who I am? The old lady whispered, don't worry, dear, matron will tell you.
0: (laughs) And to finish off, Kate?
3: And now a little poem, just a nice gentle poem for you all. It's called Give Yourself a Hug. Give yourself a hug when you feel unloved. Give yourself a hug when people put on airs to make you feel a bug. Give yourself a hug when everyone seems to get you a cold-shouldered shrug. Give yourself a hug, a big, big hug, and keep on singing. Only one in a million like me, only one in a million, billion, trillion, zillion like me.
0: Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed your September magazine, and I'd like to say goodnight from Brian, Alan, Kate and myself, all together.
5: Restful